Before we turn to the Word of God this morning, let's uh, come before the Lord in a time of prayer once again uh, as we open His Word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come into your presence to worship you this morning. We pray that you would turn our hearts to worship you with sincerity, with reverence, with awe, uh, filled with the love that you have poured into our hearts through your Holy Spirit. Set us on fire by your Holy Spirit to hear these things from your word, uh, not just in vanity uh, and in fleeting uh, thought, but to really uh, wrestle with what these words that you've proclaimed to us so many thousands of years ago that ring so true, words that come from your Son, Jesus Christ, the rock of our salvation. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open the windows of our hearts, that the light of your word may shine in and permeate our whole beings, that we may be renewed in minds by your word and be conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, in thought and in deed. Lord, I pray that you would help me to preach with boldness and conviction that this is indeed is your word, and it is authoritative because you have declared it, and it is true. And I pray that you help me to preach with sincerity of heart, too, preaching not just to this congregation here, but to myself, as I, too, am a sinner in desperate need of your grace. And may you remind me as I preach that I preach before your holy presence, that you are in hearing of this message, too. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to, uh, I believe, page 1007. We'll be in Mark chapter 11 this morning, uh, starting with verse 11, and we'll read through verse 25. It's again on page 1007. Hear now the word of the Lord. And he, that's Jesus, entered Jerusalem. This is uh, just after he had entered Jerusalem on the day, uh, Palm Sunday, uh, triumphantly on the donkey. Uh, so he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Bethany was just outside the city limits, a small little town uh, on the Mount of Olives. So Jesus leaves Jerusalem and goes to Bethany. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if, it could, if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of, money, of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for the, all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, that's the following morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, 
And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. This is the word of God. Let me start by asking a question. What are the purpose of miracles in the Bible? When you come across miracles, uh, whether it's in the Old Testament and the New Testament, what are the purpose of those miracles that are described? If you look at John chapter 3, Nicodemus says rightly of Jesus and the miracles that he performed, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. The miracles of Christ and later the miracles and signs uh, that the disciples uh, perform were outward displays of the authority given to them by God, that their messages would be underscored by God's approval as his word, namely that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God and that every word that he spoke came from the Lord and that the teaching of the apostles was authorized by Jesus himself under the very words of God. The miracles gave authority to those who performed them and that their words were verities. So, Having read about the miracle of the withered tree in this particular passage, the withered fig tree, what do you suppose the difference between this miracle, this miracle, and every other miracle that Jesus performs? Let's think about that for a second. Think about a number of different miracles that Jesus has performed throughout the Gospels. What's the difference between all of those and this one in particular? And go back to verse uh, 12 through 14. This miracle is the only destructive miracle that Jesus did. The only one that destroyed something. Every other miracle Jesus raises to life or heals, etc. But this one, the only one where Jesus actually destroys something by pronouncing a curse on it. Now, my question following with that is, why did he destroy this fig tree? Why did he destroy it? What is the significance of this miracle by destroying a fig tree? This destructive miracle is a reversal of the first blessing of all creation. Be fruitful. That God pronounced all of creation. This is a reversal of that for this fig tree, and it signifies the judgment of God on the hypocrisy of Israel, which we'll see uh, unfolding throughout this passage. It is a sign of Jesus' judgment on the hypocrisy of Israel. So if you'll note, each of the synoptic gospels, that would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they record Jesus having cleansed the temple that we see in this passage uh, just after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Okay, in, in the chronology of his ministry, it happens at the end of his ministry, in other words. Now, this temple cleansing uh, and Mark is inserted in the middle of the narrative of this withered fig tree, which occurs at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. However, you'll note that in John's gospel, uh, he records Jesus having cleansed the temple 
at the beginning of his ministry. Uh, just after uh, turning the water into wine. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he goes and does this. So we might actually assume, uh, if we line these up, that uh, we might rightly assume that Jesus cleanses the temple twice in his ministry, once at the beginning and once at the end. And so in the second cleansing of the temple, Jesus follows up his work by pronouncing judgment on Israel for rejecting him as the promised Messiah and for passing themselves off as true worshipers of God, though they had no affection for the Son of God who came to save them. The miracle of the withered fig tree represents to us this just judgment of Jesus on Israel and is a warning to us as well to repent of hypocrisy and to believe in the Son of God as Lord and Savior. Matthew Henry, that great uh, Presbyterian commentator, uh, said this on this passage, Woes from Jesus, or curses from Jesus' mouth, are to be observed and kept in mind as well as blessings. So we need to pay special attention to this serious curse from Jesus and its implications for the church today. Now, at first glance, is there anything said in this passage, particularly when Jesus curses a fig tree that might seem a bit unusual for you, perhaps more than just the fact that he curses a fig tree. Go ahead and look at uh, verse uh, 13. Jesus, uh, in this passage, curses the fig tree for not bearing fruit, even though, quote, it was not the season for figs. Many atheists and critics and opponents of Christianity have used this very passage to criticize the Christian faith, saying, Jesus was cruel and unnecessarily angry at this tree. It's not its fault it didn't have fruit on it. It wasn't the season for figs. And such a claim would undoubtedly undermine Jesus' identity as the sinless Son of God. He was unrighteously angry at this tree that eh, wasn't its season. He shouldn't have cursed that tree. However, I do think that there is a very simple explanation that not only clears Jesus of this charge, but actually helps us better understand why he curses this tree in the first place. As Jesus was preparing to enter the temple that morning, he saw a fig tree in leaf uh, to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In the, reason, in the region of Jerusalem, the normal season for ripe figs is in the fall. Now, when Jesus enters Jerusalem, this is in the spring, just before Passover. So this is uh, quite a few months before the season for figs. But note this, at the time of Jesus visiting the temple, uh, even though it was not the season for figs, um, in most cases, figs were only ripe in the summer. But there were a few rare species that actually bore fruit in the spring. And so what we need to note about this particular uh, description of the fig tree is that it's not necessarily the season for figs, summer, fall, spring, whatever the case might be, uh, for bearing fruit figs, that was the indicator. Actually, the indicator for whether or not a tree was going to have fruit on it, these fig trees, was whether or not there were leaves on the tree. If there were leaves on the tree, the tree was saying, I have figs. I have fruit. You'll know that because I have leaves on me. You kind of seem to see that with like apple trees and whatnot too, right? It starts to put out the leaves, you know it's time for the harvest or it's time for the fruit to be born. So the indicator is actually that there are presence of leaves on the tree. And if the leaves are present, so are figs. So when Jesus sees the leaves on the tree in the distance, in his humanity, 
he rightly ex uh, expects and should assume that should, there should be some mature figs to eat on that tree. However, even though this tree displayed external signs of fruitfulness, it was barren. There were no figs on that tree. And so after finding no fruit on this fig tree, though it promised it by its leaves, Jesus immediately cursed it, saying, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. This may seem strange at first glance, but Jesus in his prophetic role used this barren fig tree as an object lesson for his disciples as well as for us. Now, just a couple of days ago, uh, I had some students coming in the classroom. It was seventh period. It was about 2.30 in the afternoon. And every single student, as they were coming into my room, I said, good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning. Not a single student corrected me and said, no, Mr. Wagner, it's 2.30 in the afternoon. You should be saying good afternoon. I said good morning to every single one of them, and half of them said good morning back. And I didn't realize it until I walked into the classroom. I'm like, it's 2.30. What am I doing saying good, good morning? And so I asked the class. I'm like, none of you corrected me. Why didn't you tell me it was afternoon? Now, that was unintentional, but this could be an object lesson for my students and for myself, too, that you need to correct your brothers and sisters when they're wrong, right? Draw their attention to that. This could be an object lesson for that. It wasn't because I didn't intend it to be that case, but it could have been an object lesson for my students and for myself. Correct others when they are falling short, when they're not telling the truth. Draw their attention to that. Correct them. Gently, if you need to, right? Now, Jesus, when he sees this fig tree, intentionally, now this was not an unintentional object lesson, this was an intentional object lesson. Jesus used this fruitless fig tree as a lesson for you and for me, and especially for the disciples at that time, to record in Scripture for the purpose of this message, to tell us something more significant than just the fact that this tree did not have fruit on it, and Jesus cursed it for not bearing fruit. It was an object lesson. So, the Old Testament prophets use these object lessons, too, to uh, portray or to teach God's people of important truths through meaningful and memorable demonstrations. So, for example, Ezekiel, uh, at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem, around that time of the destruction of Jerusalem in the Old Testament era, was given an object lesson. He had to shave his hair, and some of it he had to burn. Some of it he was supposed to strike with a sword in the presence of others. Some he was supposed to scatter to the wind. And some he was supposed to tuck into his belt. Uh, that small amount was meant to be kept and saved. And this was an object lesson for what God was going to do to the people of Israel at that time for their unfaithfulness. Some were going to be completely destroyed and scattered to the winds. Some would be stricken by the sword and put to death. Right? Some would be burned up in the destruction of Jerusalem. And some God would save and preserve as a remnant to keep his promise to them. This was an object lesson Ezekiel was teaching to the people of Israel at that time. You can find that in Ezekiel chapter 5. Now, Jesus also used and utilized the object lesson as a prophet, as, a great, as the great prophet, to teach his disciples important truths through a meaningful and memorable demonstration. He cursed a fig tree for not bearing fruit, even though it put out leaves that said it was fruitful. So here, uh, it might help for us to know Mark's writing style as well, uh, as an inspired author of Scripture, uh, to understand Jesus' object lesson a little bit better. This passage is structured as what scholars call the Markan sandwich, not to be confused with the Cuban sandwich. 
Typically, that was a bad joke, I'm sorry. Typically, Mark will, in, uh, we begin a narrative and then interrupts that narrative with a, uh, another story, another narrative, uh, some related episode, but that is a little bit different, and then resume that narrative again. And the interrupting episode in the middle kind of explains, illustrates, or interprets the narrative that was, interpret, uh, that was interrupted, or vice versa. So you'll notice that the fig tree narrative is interrupted with the episode where Jesus cleanses the temple. Why did Jesus curse the fig tree? To illustrate why he cleansed the temple. Jesus came to the Jewish church seeking fruit, but found none. After Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, uh, he went immediately into the temple to have a look around. You'll see that back in verse 11. He looks around the temple. It's already late. What do you suppose he saw there when he went into the temple to look around? More of the same that he saw the next morning. Worse yet, he saw more of the same as what he saw when he drove out merchants at the beginning of his ministry in John chapter 2. Money changers. Livestock. Merchants coming and going through the court of the Gentiles. That's what he saw. He leaves and comes back the next morning Having that in mind, sees the fig tree and curses it for not bearing fruit. And then he proceeds to go into the temple and cleanse it from this hypocrisy. Jesus, at this time, uh, at the time, uh, at the beginning of his ministry, when he cleansed the temple the first time, he charged them to reform their hypocrisy. He said to them in John 2, 16, Take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. He charges them to make reforms. Three years later, he comes back, and it's just the same. In fact, it's Passover, so there's probably a lot more going on in the temple at that time than when he went the first time. Now, at the end of his ministry, he's coming into the temple, not to command a reform, but he comes with judgment for Israel. In righteous anger, Jesus drives out the offenders by uh, buying and selling in the temple precincts. He flips tables. He bars people from bringing goods in and out of the temple. Can you imagine the noise, the cacophony of this scene? Tables and chairs scuffling, the floor, money clinking everywhere, birds and other animals making noise and distress, and no one stopped him. That's what amazes me. He comes in in righteous anger, tears the place apart, and nobody stopped him, not even the scribes and the Pharisees. Full of zeal, Jesus revealed why he cleansed the temple. What he taught all within earshot of this passionate purification was this. Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The leaders of Israel had corrupted the worship of God in the temple. At the time of the Passover, just imagine how many hundreds of thousands of animals that were brought into the temple to be sacrificed. People would have traveled many miles and sometimes couldn't bring their own animals from such long distances for their sacrifice that they needed to do. So they needed to buy them in Jerusalem, which was then sold at an extremely high rate in the temple. Not outside of the temple, but in the temple itself. 
And not only that, but these animals were bought and sold in the court of the Gentiles, where the nations were to come together to worship. Not just Israel, ethnic Israel. What should have been a quiet place of prayer, of repentance, of worship of the Lord, had become a noisy circus. The distraction of all the business going on in the temple would have hindered Gentile worship of the one true God. Israel was meant to be a light to the Gentiles for the glory of the name of the Lord. And instead of magnifying the name of the Lord to the Gentiles, the Jews of Jesus' day had turned the temple into a literal stock exchange. Smack dab in the middle of the place where the nations were meant to worship God in solemnity. The Lord gave explicit regulations for how he was to be worshipped during the Old Covenant. And these practices that the Jews were doing at that time revealed not only a disdain for the Gentiles, but for God himself and what he had instructed them for true worship. R.C. Sproul comments in in his commentary on Mark that the Jews hoped that the Messiah would come in and cleanse the temple of Gentiles, but Jesus cleansed the temple for the Gentiles. That's you and me, folks. It was to be a place for people, not for sheep and goats. This was corruption of the true intent of the temple, a solemn worship of God. Worship in Israel had become hypocritical by Jesus' time. The temple was no longer a place of thanksgiving, repentance, of praise of God, but a den of robbers. The Lord's charge against Israel in Isaiah's day was just as true as it, is, as it was in Jesus' day. They draw near to me with, mouth, with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. Far from me. They had displayed all the trappings of spiritual worship. They put out the leaves of true worship, if you will. Sacrifices, prayer. But they bore no fruit of genuine faith. They worshipped money as their God. They extorted those buying animals for sacrifice. They were filled with hatred of the Gentiles. Their worship was empty of real faith. Isn't isn't that the definition of taking the Lord's name in vain? Worshiping the right God, using the right means of worship, but the heart being devoid of any real faith or love in God, that's an empty, vain, and meaningless worship. It's all leaves, no fruit. Doesn't the hatred of the chief priests and the scribes toward Jesus and his teaching clearly indicate indicate that they didn't even know the one true God in the first place? They heard his teaching, but they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. They clearly didn't recognize Jesus as the long-for-promised Messiah, though they recognized his authoritative speaking in the temple. Since their hearts were far from the Lord, they feared and hated Jesus, fearing their own loss of power and prominence, instead of worshiping him as the Son of God. 
He said in, Jesus said in John 10, 25 through 27, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. His works, his signs, his miracles, including this one. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Please, my beloved, you here listening to this message, don't forget that Jesus is the only way to the Father. To worship the true God is through Christ the Son. He is the truth. It is by his perfect life that we dead sinners have any life at all or can bear fruit for God, truly. Not just a vain external fruit or a false fruit of fig leaves, but a real fruit is to abide in Christ. When Jesus searched the fig tree and leaf, what was he expecting to find? Fruit. And when he did not find the promised fruit on this fig tree, what did he do to it? He cursed it so that it would never be able to bear fruit again. When Jesus searched the temple, what was he expecting to find? Spiritual fruit. And when he did not find the promised fruit in this temple, what did he do to it? He cleansed it of hypocrites and pronounced a curse on it and the people through the cursing of the fig tree as an object lesson to the disciples and to you and to me. The earthly temple in Jerusalem would no longer be the center of God's redemptive work, but would soon be destroyed as judgment on Israel for not bearing spiritual fruit of faith, for recognizing the Son as the cornerstone. The morning after Jesus had cleansed the temple, he and his disciples passed by the tree. So they went out of the temple after cleansing it, and they came back the next morning in Mark's narrative. And as they passed by the fig tree, they saw this cursed fig tree, and it had been withered to its roots completely. Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Why did Jesus curse this fig tree so seriously to its root? Not just saying you won't bear fruit again, but actually cursing it to his root. It became a dead tree. It's to illustrate what was to become of Israel for their unbelief in the Son of God. This is the purpose of his object lesson. In Luke chapter 12 and elsewhere in Scripture, Jesus declared that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. It is interesting to note that the disciples are utterly shocked that the fig tree Jesus cursed, which they recognized as representing Israel, because Israel was depicted as a fig tree that God had planted throughout the Old Testament, they were shocked that it had shriveled up so fast. It indicated that Israel was being abandoned so abruptly. But I don't think it was so abrupt as that. They had all of the Old Testament prophecies of Christ. Jesus had come into the temple already before this. And as the cornerstone of the true temple, this Jesus, all the sacrifices and ceremonies of the Old Covenant pointed toward its fulfillment in Jesus' finished work. From Hebrews 10, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, 
But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. At the cross, Jesus took on the just wrath and judgment and punishment of God for all who put their faith in him. So that he became the final sacrifice for us, paid in full. Without this payment through Christ's sacrifice, we will be shattered to pieces, trying to be perfectly righteous on our own merits before God's holy presence. We need to receive Christ's perfect righteousness through faith alone, in Christ alone, to be made right before God. But the Jews rejected this cornerstone and are shattered to pieces by tripping over him. Inasmuch as the Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah, as the chief cornerstone, he has rejected them as the owner of the house of God. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from the race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Romans 9. And they should have recognized Jesus for who he is. And yet, they failed to obtain the promise of God fulfilled in Christ. Why? If they had all of this, the whole Old Testament record pointing towards Christ, including the sacramental or sacrificial system in the Old Testament, which they were practicing just then. How did they not obtain that promise? Paul says in Romans 9.32, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. He has surely fallen on them in judgment, and he will likewise fall on all who reject him in judgment. And as far as the object lesson is concerned, the fig tree that Jesus cursed was not just barred from producing fruit. No, it was withered to the root so totally and completely. Matthew Henry comments that if it bear no fruit, it shall bear no leaves to cheat people. No opportunity to deceive others. You are withered to the root. Being withered to his root is a sign of total, irreversible destruction. There's no more life for a dead tree. You could try. Try to pump some maple syrup into a dead maple tree, but it's not going to come back to life. You can water it all you want. Put all the fertilizer, miracle grow you want on a dead tree. It will never come back to life. Ever. Predicting the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, Jesus said, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. In 70 A.D., God fulfilled this explicit judgment on Israel. Look at history. The Romans besieged Jerusalem, slaughtered millions of Jews. We could call it the second Holocaust, the first being the first destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and obliterated the temple. Go ahead and travel to Jerusalem today. 
Nearly 2,000 years later, there's still no temple standing. The one that was destroyed by the Romans that Jesus pronounced judgment on is the one in rubble and heaps now today with a mosque standing on top of it. That's the temple that God pronounced judgment on as a reflection of his judgment on unbelieving Israel. Such is the sure and just judgment of God Almighty. The destructive miracle of Jesus proved true to its object lesson. And what does Jesus say of unfruitful trees in the Sermon on the Mount? Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I have an old elm tree in my backyard. And for the last five years or so, it's had some leaves on its branches, but each spring, uh, there are less and less leaves growing on it. It's tangled with a healthy maple tree that we have, and it threatens to lose limbs and damage our, tree, our fence. Ironically, the tree looks alive, but it provides no shade, and internally it's dead. I want to cut that tree down. I don't really have the skills to do so, but I need to cut that tree down. Because that's what you do with dead trees. You cut it down, and you use it for firewood. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me, so says Jesus, the night before his crucifixion, just days after this cleansing of the temple. We can only bear good fruit to God through obedience if we remain in Christ. If we are joined to Christ, Jesus in faith, he produces good fruit in us as our holy root. He inclines our hearts towards repentance, which is pruning by the Father, and toward obedience of his commandments, that is the good fruit. Now, Jesus' response to his disciples' shock at the withered tree is rather profound. He says to them, have faith in God. He said, this command comes off of the heels of his discipline of Israel for their faithlessness and hypocrisy. This passage is actually often ripped out of context. Uh, especially by the Word of Faith movement, if you know anything about that. They believe that if you have faith that can move mountains, then you can perform great signs and miracles. You can manifest whatever you imagine before you because you have enough faith. Healings, wealth, signs and wonders of all kinds. But the blunder of the Word of Faith movement is just as bad as the faithlessness of Israel. They neither understand the Scriptures nor is their faith placed in God alone. Their faith... They place their faith in their own faith. It's a work of their own conjuring. For the disciples, commissioned to be Jesus' apostles and authorized messengers, having faith in God to move mountains is meant to be a faith of miracles. Uh, as Matthew Henry notes, uh, they were able to perform miracles because God granted it to them, which I noted earlier, uh, to be witnesses to Christ and to establish that their message with the authority of God. The church is built upon the apostolic teachings of Jesus Christ's disciples. By faith, they performed miracles to begin building the church of Christ. However, Matthew Henry distinguishes the faith of miracles of the apostles from the miracle of faith for you and for me once that church has been established by the apostles. To the Jewish audience, the expression of mountains being moved signified the power of God to do what he commands. In Psalm 114, the very presence of God makes the earth tremble. 
and makes the mountains, which are symbols of strength and power, skip like rams. So the miracle of faith brought about by the Holy Spirit upon us does two things in this context. First, the miracle of faith justifies us because it is God who, quoting Matthew Henry, removes mountains of guilt. Do you believe that God is able to remove all your guilt through the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ? Do you believe that he removes your guilt and throws it into the sea and it's gone forever? Second, the miracle of faith, quoting Matthew Henry once again, purifies the heart and so removes mountains of corruption and makes them plains, flat plains before the grace of God. He's so satisfied is God not only to justify his chosen branches that he uh, not only removes our guilt, but he cleanses us and our hearts in the blood of Christ. We are grafted into the holy root of Christ and are made holy immediately in his presence, as well as progressively as we are being sanctified throughout our lives. He prunes our hearts that we may produce the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Examine your own heart. Has God been pruning sin from your life? Have you been bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? Is your life characterized by a love of Christ that is evident in your own obedience to his commandments? Do you believe that he, by your baptism into a death like Christ and resurrection into his life, has broken the power of sin over you? That he has empowered you by his Holy Spirit to be able to obey the Lord Jesus out of love for him, albeit imperfectly at this present time? Furthermore, Jesus calls his disciples to believing prayer. This does not mean that you can pray for whatever you want and you will get it automatically. A Sproul aptly states that this verse, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours, must be understood in light of the consistent teaching of Scripture that we must pray in accordance with the will of God. That is, we must trust that whether God answers yes or no to our prayers, he has answered in accordance with his good and pleasing and perfect will. And we must submit to his answer of yes or no. Jesus said, not as I will, but you will. And that must be in the heart of all believers when we pray. So what of believing prayer? Do you trust in God's faithfulness and his promises? Do you trust that he's able to forgive you of your sins if you confess them and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness? Or do you think your guilt is so insurmountable that God could never forgive it, that you feel guilty every day, even when you ask for forgiveness, God is never going to remove it into the sea? Have a believing prayer that God is able to move such a mountain and toss your guilt into the sea forever and ever never to rise to the surface again. You will no longer stand condemned in Christ. And in response to the forgiveness we receive by the Father, Jesus commands us to forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, who also is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. It's not that our forgiveness is dependent on our forgiving of others, However, our forgiveness is in response to being forgiven uh, 
of our great and insurmountable debt on our own ability. Now, please remember that just as God doesn't forgive anyone and everyone without requiring repentance first, we're not obligated to forgive others if there's no repentance. Not obligated to. However, we must never bear grudges. Never bear grudges against others. Holding a grudge is a root of bitterness. It will poison the whole tree. And we must seek to make things right with those who have wronged us. And if they're unwilling to repent, we are not obligated to forgive them. But if they do repent, oh, if they do repent, we are absolutely, absolutely obligated to forgive them. Because we have been forgiven too. And we don't deserve that. As for the church today, Israel was broken off from the root of Christ because of their unbelief. But if some of the branches were broken off, this is Romans 11, and you, although a wild olive shoot, he's talking about Gentiles here, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Though the Gentiles were then excluded from the worship of God in the temple, Jesus broke off the branches of ethnic Israel so that we who are descendants of Abraham by faith could be grafted into the cultivated olive tree of Christ. So then let us carefully examine ourselves in the presence of the Holy One, the root that supports us. Is there any hypocrisy in your own heart? Are you putting out leaves that say, I'm a fruitful Christian, but inwardly your heart is full of deceit and wickedness? Is there any secret sin that you need to repent of? I think about this all the time, especially when I'm engaged in worship and my mind wanders during a sermon. Your mind might be wandering during this one. Or I fall asleep when I'm praying. Or I sing the words of great hymns, but really I'm just nursing a grudge in my mind. Or I'd rather be watching TV than commune with God in prayer and scripture reading. If that's the case, then I'm going through the motions empty of zealous love for God. And I need to repent. Have you worshipped God in vain by going to Bible studies? prayer meetings, worship services, but have no real act of faith? Do you, for all intent and purposes, look like a Christian by going through all the motions of religiosity, but deep down you have no real love for Christ? Do you participate in worship services and the sacraments and singing the songs and reciting the confessions without any meaning behind your actions? Do you take the bread and the cup of the Lord's Supper, but in your heart have no trust in the broken body and spilled blood of Christ? Are you at ease in Zion because you were baptized, you call yourself a Christian, and you assent to the truths of the Christian faith, but you have no relationship with Christ? And you look nothing like him. Are you, uh, are you called a Christian but live like an atheist? 
Have you cut yourself off from the body of Christ, resting in your Christian name only? Beware, lest the cornerstone shatter you to pieces on the day of visitation. Repent and believe in the gospel of God. Christ Jesus died for sinners like you and me. I'm preaching to myself too, people. He has removed the mountains of our guilt and makes us pure in heart through the work of the Holy Spirit. We ought to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit by the mercies of God shown to us. Seek to forgive your brother or sister who has wronged you. Be wholeheartedly willing to forgive if they repent. Pray for patience with your neighbor that you just can't stand. Pray for your enemies who hate you. I'm preaching to myself again. I feel beleaguered by unbelief sometimes and opposition by people who call themselves Christians. And it's really easy to stand in condemnation over them. And though I'm rebuking the congregation here, I'm rebuking myself too. We need to love our enemies with sincerity. Real obedience does not come from mere external behaviors or empty words. It comes from a heart that is alive in Christ Jesus. Not just external leaves that say, I'm a fruitful Christian, but with the leaves and the fruit. God is looking for those who worship in spirit and in truth. With reverence, with awe at his majesty, his glory, his love, his grace. He is looking for a church to be made up of living sacrifices. Living sacrifices. Your life, my life for Christ. By faith in the Son of God, we are made into trees that bear fruit for God, nourished by the love of Jesus Christ that is poured into our hearts. The one who filled us with the love of Christ the one who is filled with the love of Christ is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, having been under your holy word this morning, we pray that you would comfort the afflicted who feel burdened by guilt, that they may put their faith and trust in the Son of Jesus, uh, or the Son, Jesus Christ, who gave himself once for all for cleansing of our consciences by his precious blood, that you are faithful to forgive us our sins if we confess them to you, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I pray that for those who are comfortable, that you would afflict them with barbs by your Holy Spirit to be discomforted by what they've heard this morning. That they would not be at ease in Zion, but that they would trip over the cornerstone and might rather than being shattered to pieces, be put into the body of Christ 
stones built up into the holy temple of the Lord. I pray all these things in the glorious name of Jesus, your Son, the rock of our salvation, the rock of ages. Amen.